sorry for for not allowing you to interrupt me. I apologize. I didn't anticipate that you had something more important to say than me. Sorry. <laughs> Is anybody Hello and welcome to the Collier Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer. I am the vice chair of the party and the host of this podcast. Thank you guys for clicking on. On this week's podcast, we have Gary West back. He is the former deputy director of the Global AIDS Program at the Center for Disease Control, where he worked for 35 years. He is also the former vice president in charge of research at Family Health International an international nonprofit organization operating in 70 countries around the globe. In part one of this interview, Gary and I talk about the surge in COVID cases here in Florida, the U.S. government response, and a bunch, bunch more. It's a great interview with a lot of information about how to understand the headlines we're seeing every single day. And also on the discussion portion of this show, Amber, Linda, and I go into recent policy proposals that have been presented by Joe Biden and his campaign. These proposals include climate change, the economy, manufacturing, etc. We basically talk about the positive case for Joe Biden's presidency and why people should feel good voting for Joe Biden and not just good about voting against Donald Trump. But before we get into all of that, let's get some party info out of the way. We are continuing our candidate spotlights for our Democratic candidates. Our next event is on Tuesday, August 4th at 5.30 p.m. with Democratic candidate for Florida House 105, Maureen Poraz. You can sign up for this event on our website or on our Facebook page. For those of you who missed previous candidate spotlights and want to see the candidates, we have the video recordings on our website. And you can see them there. We also are putting special bonus podcasts out with the recordings so everyone can listen to the answers and the proceedings that happened on all of the previous candidate spotlights. So check them out here on the Roundup or on our website. A reminder, on August 16th, the Call Your Democratic Party will be doing a Riding with Biden car caravan to show support for Vice President Joe Biden. These caravans will be happening all over the state ahead of the Democratic Party National Convention, which starts on Monday, August 17th. So we want all of you guys to participate in this uh, event, so please sign up on our website or on Mobilize, where you will see the drive route, start and stop locations, etc. Once again, that's Sunday, August 16th at 2 p.m. For those of you who are looking for something to do to help this election, this is an easy thing to do that can help sign up for Vote by Mail. This is a free voting insurance policy for everyone this year. With COVID-19 surging across the state, there is a real possibility that polling locations will have limited staff and that lines could be longer than ever. You may not feel comfortable going to the polls come November. Signing up for Vote by Mail is free and you don't have to use it even if you want to go to the polls to vote. But if there are issues and you don't feel comfortable going to the polls, you are assured that you can still cast your ballot by filling it out and mailing it or dropping it off at any of the official ballot locations. Then you can go online and check that your ballot has been received and verified as legal. It's as simple as it gets. It's safe. It's secure. It allows you to make sure that you can vote this election. 
So please sign up today, and if you've already signed up, make sure you post on social media to your friends and family, and make sure they sign up for Vote by Mail. This is as easy as it gets in terms of helping out the Democratic Party and helping out Joe Biden and every single Democratic candidate down the ticket to make sure that you vote this election cycle. So please sign up. Mail-in ballots can be sent in starting on September 24th, and we need volunteers to sign up to be part of the Get Out the Vote phone bank team to call those voters who have gotten their ballots and get them to return them. Every vote counts everywhere. I want to remind everybody that Senator Bill Nelson lost the state by only 12,000 votes. If we can get an extra 10,000 votes here in Collier, it could make the difference between Joe Biden winning the entire election, including the state of Florida. So please, we need everyone to sign up to help with this, to make phone calls. Every vote counts everywhere. So please sign up today. And finally, anyone who wants Biden signs can still get Biden signs. They are available for a donation of $10, and we will even drive them out to your house and put them in your yard. There is not a better deal going out there. So please sign up to get your Biden signs on our Facebook page, and we will get them out to you as quickly as possible. All of this information can be found on our website, www.callyourdems.org. That's www collierdems.org. So that's all for the news this week. We will be right back with part one of our interview with former Deputy Director of the Global AIDS Program, Mr. Gary West. If you guys are interested in hearing more about what's going on with the local Democratic Party, the Florida Democratic Party, local candidates, events, when they are possible again, and local news, there are a number of ways you can hear from us. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or just check in at our website for all the local Democratic Party info. You can find all of these signups on our website at www.callyourdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. Thank you for all your support. We're happy to welcome back Mr. Gary West to the podcast. Gary is the former deputy director of the Global AIDS Program at the Center for Disease Control, where he worked for 35 years. Gary, thank you so much for coming back on. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So the last time we spoke uh, was back in March when uh, the pandemic had just started and and we were um, you know just starting to to shut down parts of the country. Um, and obviously, over the last four months, things have changed pretty dramatically. What? Let's start by talking about what new information we know now about the virus. What can you tell us about? the virus and what, what research and studies are telling us so far? Well, right now, I mean, a lot, of, a lot has changed since uh, we talked in March. Um, we're now having a surge in uh, COVID-19 cases. We more than 4 million in the U.S., uh, about 142,000 deaths or close to that, and uh, going on 16 million cases around the world and about six, 650,000 deaths. The U.S. is the hardest hit in the world, but we're followed, not that closely actually, by Brazil, India, Russia, South Africa, and, and other countries. Um, and so one thing that we actually knew about this back in March or before, but one of the important kind of facts is that the reported cases, the confirmed cases are just a fraction of the true number of COVID cases occurring within the US or around the world. 
And there was a recent uh, report put out by CDC, which we kind of expected would come, that the true uh, incidence of COVID is probably 10 times that or maybe more than that, and maybe even a greater uh, multiplication in other countries where they have less good surveillance. Within the country, when we were talking back in March, I think the Northeast had the, in California, to some extent, had the highest uh, incidence of uh, COVID. But now it's switched. They responded quite well to the virus and the virus is now uh, really surging across the country, but the highest rates are found in the South. And uh, the highest rates per, per 100,000 are now in Florida, followed by Louisiana and Mississippi, and then in Nevada, and then back to the South, Alabama and Arizona. And in those states, hospitalizations have risen sharply, ICU beds are becoming scarce, medical staff are, stre are stressed, and the rate of deaths is going to increase because that's a lagging indicator. And these are even two weeks ago, actually we have doubled the number of uh, COVID cases in the United States in just the last six weeks. And in the last, uh, I think it is 15 days, we went from 3 million to 4 million total cases where it took us uh, several months to reach the first million. So um, the pace has increased. But I should say that the surge that we're experiencing in the United States, which is beyond what other countries are facing, but there is a surge around the world. In fact, I'm kind of reminded about stories about the 1918 influenza pandemic, where the virus seemed to appear almost simultaneously around the world. And uh, although the first uh, epidemics were identified in, in the U.S. and in Spain, as I recall, but it was quickly followed by epidemics around the world. So uh, this is quite an experience for us to be living through the first time in 100 years that the U.S. or the world has faced this kind of threat. Yeah. Uh, you know, we another thing we were talking about with regard to the virus uh, last time was there was this discussion about whether or not it was going to mirror the flu and have kind of a downturn during the summer months when it gets warmer. And obviously, it looks like uh, we've kind of realized that answer, that it, that it doesn't seem to have kind of a, a seasonality effect. Is the objective uh, truth the, the actual case here, or, or is, could it have been even worse? Well, we can't answer the question about could it have been worse. We won't know until we see, you know, seasonal, see if there's seasonal variations. But right at the moment, there does not appear to be any seasonal variation. And in the U.S. and in other countries in the world that are quite warm, quite hot this time of year, are having epidemics. In fact, even back in March, places like Singapore were having epidemics. And so even then, I think it was kind of hopeful thinking we all had that it would slow down in the summer, but it hasn't. It's, it's surged. And this, I think, is more characteristic of a novel virus entering the human population where everyone's susceptible to it. And it may be 10 years from now, if this becomes endemic, which it likely will, um, we might start seeing some seasonal variation, but we're not now. It's infecting people as fast as it can. And in fact, if anything, it's, it's a little more infectious than we estimated early on, uh, possibly more infectious than influenza. And there's reports out of a uh, of a mutation that's occurred in a virus, kind of a minor mutation, but it, it helped 
one strain of the virus become more infectious and bond better to the target cells. And this has been the virus that has been in Europe and the United States. And maybe it's slightly less infectious than the virus that originally appeared in China and in some of the other Southeast Asian countries. Some people dispute this, but it looks like the preponderance of evidence is go that there has been a slight mutation that has affected the infectiousness. So it's probably a little bit more infectious than influenza is normally. The R value, R naught as it's called, we talked about that I think a bit last time, mm-hmm. is still estimated about between two and three. It might be a little higher, but what that says is for each person infected tends to infect on average two to three other persons. And so that's a pretty high rate. It's not as high as uh, like measles or smallpox, but it's pretty high. It's probably higher than influenza is, and that can go through a population pretty fast. So I wanted to ask you, um, so there's been some discussion happening at the uh, WHO level between uh, whether or not the virus is spread through droplet or is it actually airborne? Can you speak to that discussion? I know there was a letter that was sent and signed by a number right. of physicians, over 200, I think, that were trying to argue that, right. it, that, that it is airborne. Can you talk about what that means sure. and, and what that type of change, if it is airborne versus droplet, would mean? Okay, well, droplet may, mainly means that small droplets from when you cough, sneeze, sing, or even talk can be expelled to a person near you. And, uh, and that person will take it into the respiratory system, usually through the nose, and they become infected. So just imagine, you know that droplets come out when you sneeze, and you're supposed to cover your nose, cover your mouth when you cough. That actually, to some extent, protects you or protects the, exp- the expelling of those, of those droplets that are if you're infected, it would be carrying virus. So we know it spreads that way. Uh, and that's the primary way that it spread. Even back to when the early days of the epidemic in China, the Chinese were, were already talking about the possibility of asymptomatic spread. And even there was some concern about airborne spread. Now, airborne would be uh, where the virus remains suspended in the air for some period of time, maybe around a a dust particle or something like that. And it kind of hangs in the air where a droplet, you expel it, it gets your, hits your face or your, your hands or something. But if it doesn't, you're not going to get infected at that, at that point in time from the virus. But if it's in the air and you just breathe in the air, uh, then you could become infected. So for example, droplet spread, you basically have to have some contact with an infected person face to face or close contact with an infected person. Technically, with the airborne, that person could leave the room, you could come in the room uh, a few minutes later and potentially get infected. And we know that some viruses can be airborne. There's a study I worked on with a colleague at CDC. He was the lead investigator where he documented measles airborne spread in a doctor's office and published a paper on that. There's uh, pretty good evidence that smallpox has the capability of droplet spread, all most of the time it's not spread that way. So there's some evidence, and I think fairly good evidence, that airborne uh, transmission has occurred with COVID already, and that's why those doctors uh, wrote the letter and asking for the um, uh, WHO to recognize that or underscore that risk. Now uh, I think that that is probably the minority 
it probably can occur under certain circumstances. I mean, I can't know for sure, but I have seen the studies myself and they look compelling, but they're small and it's hard to document this stuff. But uh, most of the transmission is through the droplet spread, but that risk of airborne is there under special circumstances. Last time we were, there was still a lot of, uh, a lot of question about uh, whether or not someone is immune or not mm -hmm. once, uh, once they are infected and have recovered. Do we know anything more about immunity? Yeah, we've learned a bit more about this. There's still a lot to be learned, but um, coronaviruses, which cause mild upper respiratory disease in the United States and have for many, many years, uh, those viruses don't tend to confer long-term immunity. Your immunity will wane if you get infected, and almost everyone has at one time or another, immunity tends to, tends to wane after months or possibly years. Or maybe there's some mutation going on with these coronaviruses too. I don't know about that. But you can get infected again. So COVID is a coronavirus. It's from that same family of viruses. So we kind of wonder right off the bat, will it be like them with immunity from natural infection, you know, last maybe only months or maybe a few years at best, and then dissipate. And um, so based on information from the many thousands now millions of people who recovered from covid they don't appear to be getting reinfected at a at a high rate in other words if they recover a few weeks or a few months later they don't appear to be getting reinfected so that makes us think there's at least short-term immunity occurring um, however the virus has only been with us for less than a year and there's still a lot to learn about it but it looks like um most people will recover and will not get reinfected, even if they're near the or being exposed to the virus in the short term, at least, maybe, maybe the longer term. Also, just this week, uh, CDC said that it's no, no longer required to do a point of care, uh, pardon me, a uh, what do they call a uh, post-treatment test to see if you actually have uh, your immune system has rid the virus from your system because they don't think that people are infectious after 10 to 14 days after getting infected with the virus. So unless they're symptomatic, they don't think they're infectious. They're not even doing these test of cures anymore. So, so that, that's also incurring that there aren't a lot of persistent infections where people are spreading the virus for weeks or months. Although there are some persistent viral infections, but we don't know how, how infectious that person is. So, so we think that there is at least short-term immunity. Maybe it's longer than that. And that is good news for the vaccine developers because that means that if they can get a vaccine that can mimic the immunity that the body naturally develops in response to infection with a virus, then the vaccine is probably gonna work. It may be that the vaccine will, the immunity will dissipate maybe quicker than the natural disease and they'll need booster shots. So uh, that still is an open question. Right. And so, yeah, we'll get into the vaccine in a, in a little bit. But I want to before we do that, I want to talk about uh, kind of the response that the United States has had to this pandemic in comparison to um, other countries. Can you talk about how we compare to other countries around the world with regard to how we responded to it and how we've done in controlling it? First of all, for us, we had warning of the virus. 
I mean, I was looking at articles, all kinds of information before there was uh, really any discussion of this by the government and it, about control measures being inst uh, instigated. So we respond, we had a delayed response. I think CDC was gearing up and getting ready to move. And I remember one of the CDC epidemiologists getting up and trying to prepare the, the public for what's to come. I think it was in February. And we didn't hear from her anymore. And there wasn't really any mobilization of the country. And that was a big mistake, in my opinion. Um, other countries, take for Vietnam, for example, a country that I've worked in a lot and provide technical assistance to their staff for many years, they responded very quickly. They mobilized the whole country. They never had a big outbreak. They had, they had COVID, but they had a, a modest, for a country with 90 million, nearly 100 million people living in it, they had a pretty modest epidemic. And they had either no deaths or one or two deaths, even to this date. In fact, they just got a case today, they told me, uh, in the community, and they're afraid that maybe something could result from that. But they, they really did a good job. In Europe, Italy, Spain, Germany, and other countries did a good job. They responded quickly. And if you look at their statistics right now, they look a lot better than the United States does. So once you let this vir a novel virus gain ground on you, it's going to be tough to get it back. And then even today, we still have kind of a, a slow response. At least this is my opinion. I worked on this stuff myself. And for HIV, I actually mobilized efforts in this country and around the world. And this is a much faster moving virus, much more threat to the, to the large popu the population at large. And uh, we've, we've actually missed a lot of opportunities. I'm hoping that things will change now. But uh, we also saw, even in this country, we saw New York and New Jersey and a few of the Northeastern states respond very quickly to their epidemics with, you know, it was pretty, back in March, it was looking pretty bad there, but actually it looks pretty good compared to the Southern United States that uh, were, were slow to act and then reopened probably prematurely and allow the virus to resurge. So, yeah, I think that we, we kind of missed the ball. Now, hopefully um, we'll, our, our response will improve substantially um, from now on. I mean, I want to get your opinion because you mentioned this last time, how that for your entire career at CDC, that the common worry amongst all epidemiologists and, and staff at CDC for your entire time there was the risk of an airborne or or respiratory novel virus that spread and that would infect large and had a high mortality rate and and that was what you guys worried about for that entire for your pretty much your entire career and i just want to know what your opinion how did we how did the staff of cdc and and the government who recognized for so long that this is a, a possibility and, and a potential threat when it actually hits have such a slow response and and to, to actually not be not respond in the way to the thing that everyone worried about for so many years yeah well i in 1974 i joined the immunization division of cdc and from the first day we talked about uh 
you know, novel virus that could be introduced in the United States. We thought mostly about influenza because of the, of the 1918 pandemic and other pandemics in, that had occurred in, uh, in the 50s, the Asian flu, in the 60s, the Hong Kong flu. And then more recently, we've had the, uh, the swine flu uh, start pandemics. And we know that there's uh, avian influenza virus strains that have high mortality. And we often wondered, many of the epidemiologists, people who knew much more about it than I do, wondered whether one of these avian strains might cross over to humans and uh, be much more, um, have a much higher fatality rate coupled with a highly infectious airborne, potentially airborne disease like influenza. And this would be the thing we'd have to face. So we heard about it all the time. In fact, we used to say that every 10 years, there's a novel influenza virus that's going to cause a pandemic. And unfortunately, after the, the 60s, that, that uh, sequence didn't seem to be true anymore. And it was much more complicated as what influenza virus was doing around the world. Now, we had the SARS epidemic in, um, uh, what was 2007, I think it was. I'm forgetting exactly the year. Mm -hmm. That should have actually warned us. And I'm sure there are people, there are virologists at CDC that were warned and were sound, trying to sound the alarm. When the MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, occurred more recently, here's another virus, a coronavirus, that's causing, you know, kind of a period out of nowhere, started causing illness and death at a pretty high rate. I think the mortality is about 20, 30 percent with MERS, but it doesn't spread as easily. We should have been, you know, thinking about the coronaviruses and getting ready for maybe a novel coronavirus to emerge. But it, it didn't happen, and there are many other threats out there. But I think CDC's scientific staff did respond, did recognize the threat early on, but had trouble communicating and getting support for national mobilization. Um, and by the way, that's often the case with public health. You know, the public health staff will see the threat, will try to get, you know, political support and mobilization, and it doesn't always come. And that, that's been, you know, all through the history of public health, that's been uh, a common theme. This time, I think um, it's even more uh, glaring that the signs were so strong, the, the pandemic was moving so quickly, but yet even in, the, in other countries did respond, but we didn't here in the United States. And having the CDC here and all the expertise it has and all the state and local health department, public health teams that are extremely experienced. We didn't really mobilize them. We didn't get the testing program. All kinds of efforts were slow to start. That's the end of part one of our interview with Gary West. Stay tuned for our panel discussion. We know that everyone is going through a tough time right now, and many have lost their jobs or have had their pay cut because of the pandemic. Your local Democratic Party is a fully volunteer force of dedicated Democrats who are continuing to work hard to defeat Donald Trump and elect Democrats up and down the ballot for this November. This election is the most important of our lifetime, and we see how important it is to have competent and effective leadership in all areas of government, from the White House to the State House. Every donation to the Collier County Democratic Party supports Democratic candidates here in Collier County and helps us to educate, register, and motivate voters to get to the polls. Please go to www.callyourdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org.
www.donatepeterhoff.org and click on the red donate button to help. We thank you for your support. All right. On the panel discussion today, we're going to talk about two topics. The first is about the fact that the Collier County commissioners passed a mask ordinance here in Collier County. We're also going to talk about Joe Biden, who has been sitting quietly in the background, but has been busy. So we're going to talk about all of those things. But let's go into the masks first. Uh, Linda, do you want to take us away on what happened this past week? Absolutely, Jeff. So after four times of convening, the Collier County Commissioners voted 3-2 this past week to instill a mandatory mask initiative here in Collier County. And so the masks are for any business where you can't social distance. Obviously, they don't expect you to wear it around outside unless you're going to be where you can't social distance from someone. Amber, I found out one caveat today, and I'm sure there's a whole bunch, right? So there are caveats. What were they? Yeah, and I'm not trying to put any negative judgment on any of these, although we may get into that. But just for now, I'm just stating what the restrictions and the exceptions are. So per the order, masks do not have to be worn by restaurant customers or patrons while dining or consuming beverages while seated at the table. Gym patrons working out or in a class where at least six feet of distancing exists with the next closest patron. Do not have to wear masks. Barbershop or beauty salon customers or patrons when wearing a face covering would reasonably interfere with services. To me, the only thing I can think of with that is if you're getting a facial or you're getting your beard trimmed. But business owners, managers, and employees who are in an area of a business that is not open to the public, provided that six feet of distance exists between employees, and this does not apply to kitchen areas where food is being prepared, bar patrons while consuming bizarre food, or guests inside of their hotel room or vacation rental unit or things like that. So those are the exceptions that I have on here. There are two more. Um, Places of worship are excluded. Oh, yeah, I forgot. And children nine years of age and younger are excluded from the requirement. Now, in the places of worship, does that still require the distancing to be maintained? According to the Wink News article that I'm reading, it just says places of worship, period. There are no uh, caveats of social distancing within the places of worship. I, I mean, I think it's great that Collier County finally issued this mandate. I, I find it sad that it took him four times to do this. I don't know if you guys have the time to go at, to watch this meeting happen. No. On life. Oh, I did. I, was... I saw you said you were doing that, and I kind <gasps> of shuddered to yeah. myself. No, it was it was cringeworthy. Absolutely. It got really contentious. Even between the commissioners, they were facing off against each other. I mean, this has become such a push button issue that I mean, you see it at the tippy top of the White House and all the way down to the county level, how people want masks, how people don't want masks, how people were concerned about their civil liberties. I heard a lot of people talking about our low death rate, as in that's awesome and why we should not wear masks. All three of us have covered this on every podcast since we started about how we are glad 
that millions of people aren't dying here in the U.S. I think we have lost enough people. They're completely not taking into account the stressors of, you know, on our hospitals or the people just getting not even profoundly ill, but ill enough. Yeah, I don't I don't understand experiencing. But I was just so angered by it. I'm like, every you guys are all missing the mark. But it got passed three to two. So we have it. It is supposed to stay in effect until September 3rd, where I'm sure it will be revisited again. You know, the county commissioner, Andy Solis, who is county commissioner in District 2, deserves a lot of credit for getting this passed. The first time that they voted, he was the lone voter voter for it. And then his role on the Collier Tourist Board, uh, he's the chair of that particular group. And he brought it up there to force them to vote on it. The last time on July 14th, where it died 3-2, and he pushed it forward. And then uh, we should note that the reason why this came up seven days later for a vote was that Penny Taylor, who is the county commissioner in District 3, voted no on the 14th and then called for the meeting again and voted yes uh, this time. So she was the actual the commissioner that switched her vote from no to yes. And she says that she just listened to her constituents who were saying that they were concerned and wanted the mask ordinance. You know, I, we, we talked about all these exceptions, which, you know, remind me of when DeSantis closed down the state and how he excluded and had tons of exceptions for businesses that were all deemed essential that allowed so many people to continue uh, working and moving around. You know, some of it Maybe political cover in the sense that they can say that they voted for masks, but give people outs in in order to do it. But quite frankly, I'm just happy they did it because I'm sure there are business owners and people out there who want to require masks, but don't want to deal with the political fallout of making that requirement themselves. And by putting forth a mask mandate, you give businesses and you give people an excuse to wear the mask. And if they get questioned, they can say, look, it's the law. It's been passed. And I, I do this and they can walk away. They don't have to defend it from a political standpoint. They can defend it from just being a law abiding citizen. So even with the exceptions, I think it's a good thing. And I think you'll see more people start to wear it and follow it. And I, you know, I think it'll ultimately lead to fewer people getting infected and fewer people going to the hospital and dying. So, Jeff, it was really interesting that you say that because I think the messaging on masks and all the other preventative things that we could be doing to not get COVID, they'd been passed through a whole bunch of different voices and the public has gotten confused. And then you add a president who has been on purpose dividing us by issuing his own thoughts on some of these measures hasn't helped things. To your point, I think it's a headline culture and the president is as bad and probably worse than the average consumer of news. And so the reason why all of these people continue to do that in the face of the type of spread that we've seen over the last month, to me, is just is beyond explanation. I could see it in March and April, you know, especially in the in the states where you didn't have the spread that you had in New York, you know, I can see people saying, well, I'm not seeing this. So, you know, it can't be this bad and and all this stuff. I mean, I can kind of see that in March and April, but when you see the spread that we've had in June and July, I mean, 
The United States added 1 million cases in 15 days. 15 days. We increased by 25% in 15 days. We passed 4 million. The state of Florida has had 58,000 cases at the end of May. We're going on two months. We're going to be pat. We're going to be 400 and who knows, 450,000. We're going to add 400,000 cases in two months. I mean, you know, I, I don't understand how when you see those types of numbers, why nothing shakes loose. Well, I shouldn't say nothing shakes loose. If you look at the president's polling and you look at everybody um, across the country, you know, I think some things are shaking loose. There's a reason why Joe Biden is 15 points up in some national polls. Yeah, I totally agree with you guys about the messaging about this from the beginning and the fact that president had not been agreeing with his main scientific experts. In fact, after the initial press conferences, he basically did not allow them to speak to the public for months. Finally, this week, he, I would say, begrudgingly admitted that masks were useful. I think this was the first week that we actually saw him wearing a mask in public. And not only that, he encouraged the country to wear masks. And I just can't, like Linda, like you were saying, I just cannot imagine what different position we would be in with our rhetoric, with the people who are the anti-maskers, I'll call them, what position we would be in if since April the president was saying, yeah, you know, this is annoying, but we need it and it's proven to be helpful and here I'm going to show it. How many people that have had three, four months to just get drilled into their head that these masks are pointless and all the conspiracy stuff, they were able to get that into their head. And if that had come from him, because all that conspiracy stuff's coming from that side for the most part, there's a few fringe lefties, but that would just make a big difference. And I think that's just the utter failure in leadership. Yeah. And I, I agree completely. So speaking of failed leadership and the opportunity to switch to someone who actually would attempt to lead, let's go ahead and move on to Joe Biden. And um, what I really want to talk about is just let's talk about the case for Joe Biden as president. You know, we've spoken uh, over the course of this podcast about the utter failure in leadership that Donald Trump has exhibited throughout this uh, pandemic, as well as throughout his first three and a half years as president. And you know, often people are making the case kind of in a negative sense that, that we need to get rid of Donald Trump. So let's elect Joe Biden. And I think there are some pretty positive aspects to a Joe Biden presidency that need to be discussed. And I was hoping to talk to you guys about that. How are you guys feeling about his presidency and his uh, some of the platforms that he's put forward? I know he's he's released about three of, of four plans of his platform uh, ahead of the convention. What do you guys feel about how that's going? Um, yeah, I you know, I, I think I would fall into the category of what you were talking about in that I was going to vote for whoever they put up against Donald Trump. And we had such a large field and Joe Biden was not my first choice as much as I respect him in many ways. I felt like there were other people who may be more aligned with my values. 
when it came down to it, I myself was a little bit like, well, you know, he's not my guy, but I'm in because I was voting against Trump. But in the last couple of months, I have started to go a little bit less in the anti-Trump column and a little bit more in the pro-Biden column. And especially with some of the things that I'm reading about recently with some of his programs that he's putting forth. And I think we'll get into that a little bit. But I thought one of the most exciting things was that back in May, he put together what he called a unity task force. And he did this with Bernie Sanders, and they put together six different groups to focus on different aspects of policy that they would like to see put forward under Biden's administration. And, you know, there there were a lot of Bernie supporters who were very against Biden, same as they were with Hillary. And we saw how that went. And the fact that he took the initiative to seek out Bernie Sanders, somebody who, you know, Joe Biden has not been the most progressive politician historically. He's been pretty center democratic policies, but he took the initiative to make this task force with Bernie and to try and listen to alternative views within his party. And one, that's just an amazing, refreshing change of pace that we see in our politics for the last three years of somebody who will not listen to anything that is outside of their worldview. So that, just that, before I even heard of what policies they were going to start proposing, just that made me hopeful and kind of made me look a little bit differently. But, um, what I've heard since then, I think has made me even a little bit more excited. Well, first off, I, I think I, I fell along with you, Amber, in my desire to just vote for someone that wasn't going to be Trump. Initially, I was very excited by all the female candidates. I would love to see more of that represented in my politics. But with everything that he's saying, all of the proposals, the three of the four that we have heard, are insanely more progressive than I ever gave Joe Biden credit for. So I am now very excited about policy moving forward. I am excited by the things that he's proposing. I just hope we have the mechanisms to push them forward. Yeah, and I I think Joe Biden is a politician in the best sense of that word, in the sense that he understands that governing requires compromise and that even when you believe that you're right on the principles that that may not be enough to actually win the day or get a bill passed and make people's lives better and i think you see that in the fact that he's bringing up the task force setting up with bernie sanders and bringing in alexandria ocasio-cortez on the climate one with john Kerry. And Bernie Sanders and his faction to bring in and talk about health care and, and these things. You know, is it 100% what those individuals wanted? No, but it is a lot of what they wanted. And it moves this country in a much more progressive direction than I think any of us, as you guys said, anticipated. So I think policy wise, he's making all of the moves that we would want in order to address the core issues that face the nation. 
But I think there's also a positive case, and this is one that John Stewart has been making, mm-hmm. and and that is just the case for Joe Biden from a standpoint of humility and the experience that he has gone through in his life. Everyone needs to remember the tragedy that he went through as a 29-year-old newly elected senator losing his wife and his young daughter in a car accident and having to raise his three-year-old and four-year-old sons as a single dad. That experience and that loss and that grief has made him someone who can understand and connect with people on a way that obviously the current president has no ability or interest in doing. I don't know that you can show a more contrasting example between two individuals on how they handle things. I mean, Joe Biden dealt with losing his wife and his daughter, and Donald Trump mocked Gold Star families who lost loved ones defending this country. Like, I think that's a pretty compelling, positive case for electing somebody. And I think in this time, because of all the things that Donald Trump has done to divide this country and to try to make us all see each other as different and the other, I think you really need someone who can unite. And Jeff, to speak to your topic about just different messaging, I mean, we've talked about how the Republican Party likes to tell you who to fear. They don't necessarily want to work to to fix things. They want to tell you who you should blame for it or who you should be afraid is coming for you, like some type of boogeyman. And I think it's just, it is refreshing. And I have found it refreshing. Joe Biden's earnestness, you know, in his rhetoric, not angry rhetoric, but rhetoric that is meant to bring us back together again. You know, guys, I just want to wake up in the morning and look at my newsfeed and not have to prepare myself for some kind of craziness. Like, I want to explore some hobbies and (laughs) look into some other things. I just want the government to do what it's supposed to do. And, like, I don't need to know about it, some crazy thing that's happened every day. If we can just have some sanity and people that are running things normally i'm i so am looking forward to that yeah <laughs> and I, you're absolutely correct i mean and he's been running the campaign on that issue which is that a return to normalcy but what i like and we spoke about this earlier which is that what he's done really well is that he has said that we want to return to normalcy in that He's not going to go out and say a bunch of crazy things and do a bunch of crazy things, but he's going to pursue policies that are going to try to address the issues that are affecting the American people. Do we want to get into a little bit about what just kind of summarize some of the, the things that have been proposed? Because honestly, I, I mean, like I said, I am. I wake up every day and I'm reading major news sources and cross-referencing with things that different pages that I follow are posting and I have seen a couple little blurbs but today was the first day that I really dove into all of his stuff and I think that most people are not familiar with it so I think it might be important to go through yeah I mean so some of the stuff in there 
So let's start with the poorly named platform that the Biden campaign has put forward, but everything within it is pretty robust and pretty good. So he's calling the platform Build Back Better so that we need to build this country back. We do not need to return it back to where it was. We need to build it back better. And so he highlights basically four key areas that need to be addressed to fix the system that we have. And those four areas are phase one or part one is to focus on manufacturing and technology to reprioritize American-made products. And within his plan, he outlined spending $700 billion total on manufacturing and research over the next four years to encourage more American-made companies to come back and make their products here, to incentivize government projects to purchase uh, American products, uh, and then to emphasize funding in research and development to try to develop the new industries of tomorrow. And to add to that, before you go into the next part, two things with that is he estimates that this initiative would add about 5 million new jobs. And his proposal to pay for this is the raising of the corporate tax rate from the 21% that it had been adjusted to with the tax cuts back to where it was previously at 28%. Right. So that's phase one or part one of his platform is to focus on the, on manufacturing technology. The second part is basically infrastructure and a clean energy economy. So this is coming out of the task force with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and John Kerry. And this plan outlines extremely robust goals to hit carbon-free emissions power grid by 2035. There are a bunch of other dates with regard to automobiles and net neutral carbon emissions across the country. And that plan is looking to spend $2 trillion over the next four years in upgrading infrastructure, installing solar panels, and energy efficient roofing systems, etc. So a very, very aggressive push to not only upgrade the infrastructure of the country, which is badly needed, but also to address the climate change that threatens the world and our contributing factors to it. And I just want to add one thing to that. To me, speaking as a lifelong environmentalist, this was music to my ears reading some of the stuff that they proposed in here. And, you know, as much as I am excited to see it, I also feel like it's not just like, oh, yay, we're getting this. Like, this is stuff that's necessary for us to move forward as a society. And if we don't do these things, we're going to be seeing some major problems in the future. But one of the cool things that I thought is that they built into some of their clean energy initiatives. They wanted to put 40% of those to be directed towards disadvantaged communities, um, not only with jobs, but just in getting them on a clean energy grid so that they'd be putting that money into those communities. So then they would actually be a little bit more future forward and including like uh, Native American communities and then just other poor communities. So the fact that they've thought about that within this plan, I thought was really impressive. Yeah. And if I can add also the wording that kind of struck me too, which goes along with what you just said, Amber, that he plans to link these environmental advocacy to racial justice. 
So describing how pollution and other toxic components harm poor communities, African-American communities disproportionately. So, I mean, he's, of course, trying to give them a piece of the pot, but also protect them from some of the mm-hmm. things that have happened in their communities. And one thing that struck me immediately was the Flint water crisis. Mm-hmm. That it was one of the poorest areas in that state who suffered greatly. I mean, I can't see something like that happening in Naples. Yes, that was the phase two of the Build Back Better. So phase one, manufacturing technology. Phase two is an investment in infrastructure and a shift to clean energy economy. Phase three is to build a 21st century caregiving and education workforce, which would focus on making it far easier to afford childcare, to ensure aging relatives and people with disabilities have better access to home and community-based care, to elevate the pay, benefits, and professional opportunities for caregivers and educators. It included lowering the Medicare age to 60, offering a government-run public option to those who want it for insurance, drug maker reform, terrain and costs, update Obamacare, all types of things to do with healthcare. But one of the things that I think, think is really great about this particular portion of it is something that is happening everywhere uh, else in the industrialized world, which is to mandate that we get federal work leave for new parents, that parents can have childcare. I think they're looking to make pre-K universal so that kids three to four years old are automatically enrolled into pre-K as part of the public education system, which would, again, addresses one of the key driving factors in education gaps is that minority students aren't getting that pre-K level education early on and sets them up for being behind when they enter into kindergarten and first grade. So lots of great things in this particular one. We're uh, addressing things that we're way behind the ball in terms of globally in providing our citizenry with essential safety nets that everyone else has. Absolutely. Um, Super important to say, too, that the U.S. is the only rich country without paid family leave and universal child care. That's been going on in other countries for a really long time. We got to catch up here. So I thought that one of the interesting things in this plan, they also put a large emphasis on elder care and community-based care, as well as in-home care. And one of the things that it really wants to address is that there's currently an 800,000-person waiting list with Medicare for in-home care. And the number of people that just do not receive the care that they need, and then how that will snowball into more medical bills and higher insurance for all of us and just taxing our medical system. I mean, you think about the money that is spent in this to be proactive and get those waiting lists down will probably be saved. And speaking of money, I know this one in particular, they spoke about he wanted to pay for this by rolling back their certain tax breaks for wealthy real estate investors, basically somewhere between 400 thousand to a million dollars a year. We're not, they're not exactly sure on the cutoff, but there are certain tax breaks that they receive for people that make more than that and are doing real estate transactions that have been built in over the years. So taking back some of those and that will be used to pay for some of this. And it's also talking about creating about 150,000 new jobs and creating a public health 
Jobs Corps, which I thought was a really interesting idea, kind of like a nationwide Peace Corps, you know, AmeriCorps kind of plan, but specifically focused on health. So in situations like we're currently facing where you have a pandemic or you have different health crises that break out across the country, that you would have this trained core of individuals that would be ready and trained to deploy and help take care of these things. And I thought that was a fantastic idea. And then also they talked about allowing tax breaks for people who care for elderly family in their home. I mean, there's so many people that take on this burden of health care for their families. And it's something that we don't speak about enough, how much American families have to spend not only time and money on health care for their loved ones, in particular elder care. As our baby boomer population is aging, there are going to be so many of us who are having our parents in their home and wanting to take care of them. So I really liked that yeah. idea. So there's one quote that I read from Biden, which I thought really summed this up perfectly. And he said, if we truly want to reward work in this country, we have to ease the financial burden of care that families are carrying. Yes. And I think that the other part about this particular section, which is caregiving and education, is that there is an economic benefit to it because there are significant parts of the population because we don't have universal child care and because we have people taking care of elderly parents and whatnot, they're not out there in the workplace. They're not out there producing or contributing to the economy directly. They're at home doing their responsibilities there. And so you can see that if you allow them the freedom to go out and work in the workplace, that's a benefit to the economy as a whole. You're gaining all of these new workers and people that can go out there and be productive in the general economy that were not able to because they had to stay home and right. be able to make and that, that decision. predominantly so. falls on women both of those child Correct. care and elder care and the free labor that people have gotten from women if you if you were to pay for those services you know it, you look at the income gap between men and women it would be pretty even if they yep. were to get paid for what they actually did so that's the third pillar of the Build Back Better plan. And so the last one is a commitment to addressing systemic inequality in our society. This is to deal with the systemic racism that has been kind of built into the way our country works since its inception. And this plan hasn't fully come out yet. So we're dealing with kind of the outlines of it which is to invest in minority communities by expanding affordable housing, to invest in Black and Latino and Native American entrepreneurs and communities, and to advance policing and criminal justice reform. So I, you know, I, I think he's done a, a pretty good job of outlining everything that we should be focusing on. And again, I think it's a pretty positive case for Joe Biden as president. And I think that this would be a compelling choice even if Donald Trump wasn't the president. I think if Joe Biden was running against a generic Republican, that this is a pretty compelling vision for where we need to go as a country. Yeah, like I said at the beginning, I honestly was very excited and hopeful reading through 
some of these. And I know there's a lot of campaign promises that cannot be fulfilled for whatever reason. Sometimes they're unrealistic. Most of the time it's because of just the wheels of government run slowly or in the case of Mitch McConnell Senate just grind to a halt because they are completely stubborn. But I was really excited, especially about the environmental issues, but some of the other stuff made me happy. Yeah, I think I am excited, too. I feel like when we talk about Mitch McConnell, I, I, I immediately picture him as a stick that that you like stick in the in the spokes of a bicycle and then the bicycle crashes. Like that's literally how I think of Mitch McConnell. And also, I'm going to tell you that these plans are amazing. They're wonderful. They're progressive. I, I am very excited by his platform, but I really feel like every Republican head is exploding because the way that he wants to pay for this is the antithesis of whatever Republican promises upon entering office is that we're going to give you all tax breaks. Yeah, I'm glad we, we got into this because I actually wrote a bunch down on the concerns of the Republicans because I think that people need to be prepared to deal with it because I think they are going to lose their collective minds on a lot of this. So like the first one is cost. They're going to bring up the cost. I really think that's a hollow argument, especially after 2017. I mean, they had no qualms with giving corporations and wealthy constituents a trillion dollar tax cut in 2017 that showed no tangible benefit to the economy or to average Americans. And still um, hasn't, by the way, in, in 2020. And still hasn't, three years later. Absolutely. And But you're saying we can't spend money to invest in our country and our people in the future? Like, we can spend money just to give money to corporations and rich people, but we can't spend it to actually build things that would make us stronger and better or prevent an environmental catastrophe that's going to affect everyone. It doesn't make any sense. I think it's a hollow argument, and I don't think Democrats should shirk from arguing that point. And every economist will say that these tax cuts were just detrimental to us and to the middle class and also to the deficit, which, I mean, let's face it, every Republican likes to throw out whenever we ask them to pay for something. So well, only, only when a Democratic president is in office. Exactly. So let's talk about what these tax cuts actually did to our deficit pre-COVID. Yeah. And I think that the second thing that you're going to hear from Republicans is new taxes. We've already talked about that. They all are against any taxation whatsoever. But look, the rich have gotten a disproportionate share of all of the gains from the economy in the last 50 years. If you look at from 1968, the top 5% accounted for 16% of all income. It is now 23%. So now the top 5% gain 23% of all the money that's earned in the United States. The middle class has seen their wages rise slower than the richest. And since 1989, the gap between the top 5% and the lowest quarter of the society has more than doubled. And all of that is from Pew Research. So this argument that we should never raise taxes is absurd. You have think, to pay for things. I think they need to rebrand the taxes and basically call it corporate welfare it's not that, oh, all these poor people are trying to uh, get all this free stuff from the government. It's the top billionaires that are getting free stuff from the government with these tax cuts. They're getting the welfare. They're getting bailed out anytime there's an economic issue. If trickle-down is truly a viable strategy, 
and all of your tax cuts, which have been weighted disproportionately to corporations and to wealthy, why is it that over that same time period, the income inequality, the gap between the richest and poorest has grown, not shrunk? Another item that's going to be thrown at this is big government. That is a common Republican theme. I I really want to just say to people, how has the Republicans' whole small government mantra worked out during this pandemic? The Republicans have argued for years that the private industry is the only way to deal with any problem. And then faced with a large problem, their strategy was to basically push the decision-making all the way down, allow people to have their own private decision-making, and what has happened. If you look at all the other European countries who have a robust government response, they're handling this well. They're being able to respond and their citizenry is in a much more safe and secure position. Government is capable of handling the big structural problems far better than private industry because capitalism will not allow private industries to be able to unify and coalesce around a common objective when each individual company is competing against one another for the profits. And you need a government entity to step forward and say, we're moving this forward in this direction because it's in the best interest of the entire country. And we're not concerned about our own individual profits. So on that note, let's just go ahead and end it there. Okay. Um, Amber and Linda, as always, thank you guys so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And let's go out there and make some good trouble. All right. That's our show. I want to thank Gary West for joining us again. Thanks to Agent 13 for the theme song. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We've got under 100 days left until Election Day. Nothing more needs to be said, and we need everyone to pitch in. Hope everyone's staying safe out there. Until next time. So long.